a campaign isn't just a long game. Kind of like this isn't just a long episode. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, episode 23, I speak with Henry Hyde about wargaming campaigns, his upcoming book, and actually running your own wargaming campaign. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by King's Hobbies and Games. As you know, King's Hobbies and Games isn't just a, an outlet for getting stuff online. It's the pride and joy of its proprietor, Tim Spikowski. And if you spend just a little bit of time taking a look at his site at kingshobbiesandgames.com and looking at the Facebook groups for special artisan service miniatures, you can definitely tell that Tim is really into what he's doing, not just with the premium painting and modeling supplies, but also the figures he sells, and especially with the models that he is 3D printing, and all as well as the models that he is having sculpted traditionally. The 28mm traditionally sculpted metal figures, the 3D printed, molded, and cast resin vehicles and scenery, it's it's what he's into and you can tell it's this isn't just a job for him so do yourself a favor go check out kingshobbiesandgames.com and special artisan service miniatures on facebook links as always are going to be in the show notes if you have any question about what i'm talking about it's it's definitely something to see stays on the cutting edge of current technology with the projects he's coming out with it's just really outstanding so go take a look you won't be disappointed it's good stuff. Kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. And we're back. I am joined today by Henry Hyde, a friend of the show to be sure, and a, well, I'd say a well-known member of the wargaming community, certainly, and glad to have you on the show again, Henry. Thank you, Jay. It's great to be here again. It's uh, been a while. I don't know where the time's gone, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, but it's great to be back on the show, Jay. Well, great. I, I really appreciate your support uh, that you've exhibited throughout the, the life of this podcast. And I guess we should probably, probably get stuck right in. What, your current book, or the book that you're working on currently, is called Wargaming Campaigns. Yep. And you're designing it to dovetail with the Wargaming Compendium, or is it, are they going to be able to be separately enjoyed? Um, they can be separately enjoyed, um, that's for sure. Um, there's certain elements uh, that, obviously, because I wrote a chapter, or a part of a chapter, in the Wargaming Compendium that was all about Wargaming campaigns, uh, obviously there's a, a you could say a degree of overlap but what I didn't want to do was literally just kind of cut and paste chunks from the Wargaming Compendium and stick them in the new book I thought um, well first of all if I was a reader I would feel hugely cheated by that uh, you know if I'm paying for new words I want new words <laughs> right yeah. uh, secondly god that would have been really boring for me too you know it's it's all very well i because i know that there are writers out there who just 
uh, kind of like cut paste chunk 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 add a bit in between filler 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 that's not what I intended to do whatsoever and in fact you you know you mustn't forget as well Jay that it's probably um, you know the Wargaming Compendium was published what middle of 2013 kind of like June July 2013 wasn't it mm -hmm. and so I'd finished actually writing that book a good six months previous to that so it's coming up for like five years since i wrote uh the stuff in the wargaming compendium hard to believe i know but it is true <laughs> um and therefore inevitably um my, my approach to certain things has changed too my feelings about campaigns the the kind of advice i would give about campaigns and also the kind of advice that people want to receive has changed you know a lot of water's gone under the bridge since 2012-2013 and so i think it was only right of me to try and make the book as up to date as i could possibly make it at the time it's going to be published you know so um because again i think um that if i was a reader I would want the book to be as contemporary as possible. You know, it's everyone accepts, I think, that when a book is published, it is, it's just a snapshot in time. Sure. It's the thoughts and opinions and advice of uh, the, the best that the author can give at that moment in time. And inevitably, you know, stuff comes into goes out of production, get, games get popular and then, you know, fall off a cliff. Uh, so it, of course it's a snapshot um, but yes I think the primary thing is Jay that it's it, it, it's all new you know the, the everything in it all the maps you know I've uh, one of the things that I've been tweeting about recently is I've madly um, decided for the purposes of the book partly you know mostly for the purposes of the book oh yes um there was this idea that came up with when i was chatting with a friend of mine simon tonkis oh it's a while ago we would um simon tonkis i should point out is a guy who takes part in the big Aiton campaigns that i've run you know several times in recent years uh, mm -hmm. where it's all kind of 18th century imaginations and, and Simon, foolish boy decided that he wanted to play the part of the commander of my favourite country in, in the world I was creating, Puntland uh, so uh, one of the things that I did for him a, a few years ago now, I helped him create uh, what we call the Punkländische Ostindische Compagnie, which is uh, POC for short, P-O-K, which is basically the, the Prunkland's equivalent of the East India Company, right? Right. So this is the guys that have been given a license by King Ludwig of Punkland, my completely fictitious country, to go off into the world to explore it and exploit it. And they have kind of free license to do pretty much what they want, just like the East India Company as long as they donate substantial profits to the coffers you know of the royal household so um simon was delighted by this and we sort of came up with some regimental flags for it and we already had a, a regiment of marines and he collected a couple of battalions of sepoy types and they sort of it took part in one of the a couple of the previous campaigns that we've done now along sure. the way uh, he said to me, "Oh, I really, you know, I really like this idea of the 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 POK. You know, 
Is there any way, Henry, you could sort of come up with uh, some sort of bit of your world that's the equivalent of kind of India, that you know, that, that sort of thing? So I said at the time, well, yeah, that, yeah, that's a great idea. And then, you know, life took over, other stuff intervened, and it, it kind of sat on a shelf as an idea. Uh, but I'd always sort of thought, oh, yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? But at the same time, I realised, you know, it's a fairly major undertaking. So anyway, as I was writing this new book, it occurred to me, well, here's the perfect opportunity to turn this idea into a reality. So mm. I I did a rough sketch map of just kind of an outline of a of a subcontinent, and I I I just came up with a you know a silly idea for a name. And I, I funnily enough, I'd been out to an Indian restaurant and I'd been eating dal, <laughs> you know, lentil soup kind of stuff dal so i called it dahlia but some people are calling yeah. it dahlia already like the plant but the idea was it's dal because it's like taka dal you know and yeah. i think there was uh, some sort of brand of curry paste or something i saw that was like chindra or something like that so the country next to it which might be seen as kind of the equivalent of pakistan i called chindrastan right and right. i just done this kind of rough outline in pencil literally so for the book what i did i i and people will be able to follow it step by step through the book how i've created this subcontinent um i scanned in this pencil outline and then uh, traced you know, put it into photoshop traced the outline and i've just been gradually building this map uh, in Photoshop step by step and taking screenshots as I complete each stage so that in the book uh, you get a complete explanation of how to create a totally fictitious map from scratch to something that looks like it could have come out of a real atlas okay yeah um, so I hope that the readers are going to really enjoy this and i'm you know the other thing i need to point out is because i'm stupid <laughs> and a megalomaniac this subcontinent is vast okay this subcontinent measures something like two and a half thousand miles wide by four thousand miles <laughs> right or something like this. it's it's crazy you know um and well, anything anything worth doing is worth doing big, I guess. Absolutely, and I have you know I I I have kind of figured that, well, this is something that I can tinker with pretty much for the rest of my wargaming life, and and also uh, plans I've got is to to inc get other wargamers, well-known wargamers, and not so well-known wargamers involved. You know, so I could say to you, Jay, you know, well, here's this vast subcontinent. Do you fancy being the Raj of this bit over here okay um, and the reason for this is partly it's it's an homage um, one of the things I, I write about in the book is uh, previous you know famous war game campaigns that uh, uh, have been undertaken by well-known war gamers of their time you know and um, one of the earliest ones and probably the 
earliest one that people really knew about was the Hyboria campaign conducted mm-hmm. by Tony Bath. Tony Bath, who of course founded the Society of Ancients and you know was there with Phil Barker in the early days and so on and so forth. Uh, Tony Bath, for those who don't know, uh, highly intelligent guy. I believe he also lived in the Southampton area with Don Featherstone. They were they, I don't know if they were actual neighbours, but they certainly lived in the same town and, and gained together a lot. Uh, so one of the one of the interesting things when you do the research for a book, you find out stuff. You know, I, I, you know I've been a war gamer for a long time and you know. I've written a huge book about it and I you kind of get to the point where you think oh gosh you know well what else is there to find out well whenever you start researching it's incredible what you find out sure. uh, and Tony Bath and Don Featherstone were good friends for quite some time I get the impression they might have had a bit of falling out at, towards the, the, the end but they were regular war gamers together and they uh, Don Featherstone was involved in was the first person involved really in Tony Bath's Hyboria campaign with Tony Bath now for people that don't know uh, the Hyboria campaign uh, is of course based on the Conan books Mm-hmm. Uh, name of the author's just gone whoosh out of my head. You can Google that while I'm talking, can't you, Jay? You know, Conan the Barbarian and all Robert that. Howard. That's the one. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, from back in the day. And so Tony uh, Bath. That, yeah, that's that's a great. Well, that, I mean, that's that's a great fantasy. Yes. Uh, milieu to get yourself involved in for gaming because the way he, yeah. the way Howard described the uh, the denizens and the in the yeah. uh, environments i mean it's so yeah. incredibly diverse it wasn't you know you get everything from the you know the, uh, basically scandinavia through absolutely middle, you know middle europe through on down to sub-saharan africa even yeah. so you, you get a little bit of everything yeah and and what happened was because tony bath was the founder of the society of ancients he it's amazing that I've been reading that there were uh, meetings, uh, competition meetings, tournament meetings of the Society of Ancients, where basically uh, all the players were involved in the Hyboria campaign. So the actual, these ancient battles that might have looked like, yes, it was Romans versus, you know, Persians or whatever. In fact, it was a needle match from the Hyboria campaign between two Uh players of neighbouring countries on Tony Bath's map. So it's absolutely hilarious, you know, that that here's so many war gamers. We've talked about this previously, and I have with Neil Shuck on his podcast, about, you know, people's realism. We were talking about realism last time we spoke, weren't we? Uh, realism in war games where you have these guys who you know I'm sure you know would write learned papers for Society of Ancients slingshot magazine and and insist that there should be historical matchups whereas in fact they were involved in this Hyboria campaign that was complete fantasy Mm -hmm. Uh, it's wonderful absolutely wonderful so this is kind of the idea I've got for my uh, Dali and Chindrastan is that here's an opportunity um, for uh, people who might be interested in completely different things to participate in this kind of mad world that I've yeah 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 I'm creating. So of this, obviously, you know, as with Simon, he's representing uh, kind of an 18th century Germanic type 
country that's basically invading and trying to conquer and exploit uh, this vast, the vast wealth of this huge subcontinent. But then you might have other people who basically their primary interest is ancients or medievals right. or something like that. Now, anything that's potentially possible up to you know 1750 or thereabouts as a starting point um they could potentially participate um so i've you know and and you can have these mad match matchups where you might have someone who likes you know uh, uh ancient bit or dark age byzantine thematic byzantine armies uh, coming up against someone who likes the prussians of frederick the great right uh mm -hmm. and i just think it's completely bonkers, but potentially tremendous fun. Um, well, you're describing a you're describing a DBA tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's possible. That's possible. Um, I couldn't possibly comment. I have to say, that. but yes. So anyway, that's kind of the idea, Jay, behind this all this mad map making I've been doing. But it's the, the thing is because it's me, you know. This I've got to sure. I've got to put my hand up. This is one of the things that has been delaying me finishing the book because, of course. Uh, you know, I could have just done a little. Oh, look! Here's a little thing the size of the Isle of Wight, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, twenty miles by fifteen or whatever. That's not me, is it? And I think people, to be honest, I think people would be disappointed if they came away from this book saying, oh, well, I was expecting something a bit more than that, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> how's a vast subcontinent do for, you know, with, with mountain <laughs> mountain ranges that where uh, points are kind of nearly as, as tall as Everest and uh, there's going to be deserts and there's huge rivers and volcanoes and... You know, it it it's been quite an undertaking, and it's it's also uh, it interesting. My goddaughter um, is uh, studying to be a geography teacher, okay. and I remember you know because my godson, I've mentioned this before, my my godson who's now become a teenager and and doesn't like toy soldiers at all. He thinks that they're stupid, and computers are much more interesting, uh, but. Um, back when he was a little boy and his and his sister who was a, a little bit older than uh, him I taught them to play war games uh, and the very earliest ones I can remember playing with them uh, were with those do you know those lovely Schleich knights that you can get from oh, toy yes. shops the plastic was beautifully you know fantastically sculpted yeah. and, and you yeah, know, lovely armour and stuff yeah they're available here in the United States at Toys R Us and even yeah. Target stores yeah. sometimes we'll have them yeah they're beautiful miniatures they're like you know uh, what are they kind of like 75 millimeters tall something like that yeah. aren't they you know three inches tall something like that beautiful things and I taught them to play kind of medieval skirmish games with those and, uh -huh. and we had, used to have great fun but anyway she was a girl she went off to be a girl you know and, and lost interest in, in in gaming though that's another subject we can come back to actually uh, because that doesn't have to be the case but let's just say that her mum encouraged her to be a girly rather than a tomboy uh, hmm. But anyway, um, now she's studying to be a, a geography teacher, and she's um, how old is she now? She's like uh, nineteen, twenty years old, and um, she's interested in geography. And I got talking with her about you know geography, and and talking to her about how, of course, when you're creating a war games map, and knowledge of geography and geology and that kind of stuff is 
you know, incredibly necessary and, and a fascinating subject. And in fact, in the section of the book I'm writing, in the chapter of the book I'm writing, this is something I talk about about how it can really help to even if you only watch tv documentaries but to have a basic understanding of you know plate tectonics and and what happens when continental plates bash into one another and create mountain ranges and that kind of stuff you know and so suddenly she was fascinated uh, she, it hadn't dawned on her that you know this hobby of playing with toy soldiers could overlap at all with anything that she was interested in well she's got really excited about it uh mm -hmm. and and she's now saying oh oh now you know i'm seeing what you're doing there and i'm talking to her about of course as you create the map and how in your imagination you're as you're creating the landscape you're starting to think okay well what kind of flora and fauna might live here what are the people going to be like right, uh, right. and and where will cities spring up you know that major routes going along rivers and down valleys and and all this kind of stuff and and oh look this is how i work out how many cities there should be and where they should be and 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 how you can create it entirely randomly which is effectively you know talking about one of the differences between the war the wargaming compendium and this book jay uh, you know back when i was writing the compendium i presented an idea that was you know it, it pretty much entirely random whereas now obviously i've got a great deal more experience making maps and I've got a much better eye for, oh, you know, it would look better if those hills joined up with those hills to make a mountain range. Or, oh, the course of that river would look better going this way rather than that way. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so she's now saying, well, when it's done, when it's done, Henry, can I take part? Which is, wow. <laughs> right yeah. she's got excited and and she's got excited about being this kind of you know indian type princess with lots of elephants in her army and 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 mm -hmm. uh, servants doing her bidding and you know oh well and hold on this... hold on if you've got yeah. elephants you know what that means uh, go on flaming pigs oh no <laughs> no more flaming perhaps pigs. some type of flaming pig catapult <laughs> Well, or a ballista, we a flaming pig ballista. Friends. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Andy, Andy McMaster, if you're listening, he's already got a battalion of flaming pigs or thereabouts, <laughs> which he has already given an outing when we did. Oh God, a few years ago now, wasn't it? When we did the Bizarbia campaign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but oh, fantastic. I mean, what a brilliant. See, this is my attitude to umpiring, Jay, uh, which is that. If someone comes to me with a proposal and however daft the proposal but they frame it in a sensible way and they suggest well you know it, of their own accord they suggest well this is how it could be used and this is what the limitations probably should be you know I'm not expecting this to be a super weapon but it would be a bit of a giggle wouldn't it well man you know they're going to get the thumbs up from me because right. anything that adds <laughs> to the general merriment of life you know fantastic so anyway that's um you know i was rambling on there about the map making process but that has been um right and is at the moment still uh in fact i'll rustle this at your listeners 
this is a, a printout of the the subcontinent in its current state um right. and i've just been adding regional boundaries and i'm uh, this is this is uh, something where your listeners actually can participate jay right because mm. i'm going to be putting this out on twitter and facebook as well which is having created this vast subcontinent with its you know hills and provinces and cities and towns and god knows what and rivers um I, i'm going to need some help naming these things right uh, now, when it comes to a European setting, I'm okay, you know, because I, I speak some languages and, you know, that comes kind of... When it comes to so, a sort of an Indianish subcontinent, this is where I have to throw my hands up and say, do you know what, I'm not sure where I'm going to begin. I, am I going to have to go away and learn Urdu or Hindi or something like that? <laughs> uh, but at the same time, obviously, I don't want to... Uh, I, I quite like it when place names are witty, but obviously... I don't want to cause offence, right? Uh, right, right, right. I, I, I don't want to inadvertently uh, give something a silly name that turns out to be an appalling insult in Hindi or Urdu or something like that, you know. You know, I, I, I don't want to have any any kind of fact was declared against me, right? Uh, so, um, however. I would uh, love it if, you know, if your listeners are interested and anyone else out there, I'm going to be saying this through Twitter and Facebook as well, uh, that if people would like to send in, let's say, you know, no more than half a dozen per person, ideas for place names, names of rivers, mountain ranges, uh, provinces, uh, you know, little kingdoms, that kind of thing, then they may well get included in the book right yeah. uh, on the map and anyone whose suggestions do get included will i will put a list of names at the back of the book uh, in thanks how about that right that sounds great that sounds uh, great now <laughs> i do have to tell you when you first mentioned this <laughs> my my mind immediately went to a term that i heard about through our interpreters when i was in afghanistan yeah and that is ponch ponch <laughs> All right, which means Panj in Urdu means five. Yeah, and is also a euphemism for a hand. All right. So, if you're engaging in Panj Panj, you're using your hand. Okay. Oh. For <laughs> surreptitiously. <laughs> ah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably the kind of mistake I don't want to make. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. How, how, what's your audience age group here? I don't know. I'm, I think I think we're okay. I I didn't. I haven't gotten any negative feedback yet from the last episode because I did say asshole in it. Oh well, there you go. You just said it again. Uh, I think was, your listeners well, will be fine. But uh, <laughs> it right, was. So, People out there listening, no suggestions like that. Thank you very much indeed. Or it would have to be delivered a much more... Well, the the thing is, though, I can't say anything. Because one of my uh, Prunkland regiments is the Fiel Ficken Hussars, which... <laughs> Do I have to translate that? Not our, Germ <laughs> our German listeners will know immediately what that is. And and one of my colonels of a regiment of infantry is von Arschloch. <laughs> <laughs>
right? So... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, Anyone? That, that, I mean, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, you can you can inhabit your yeah, you know your your own. I mean, you can. I think it'd be fine. Anyone, anyone. I have previously published. There are battle reports elsewhere and stuff of uh, units from Brooklands Army. I'm just thinking. Oh my God, are they in the Wargaming Compendium? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. Because I think I would have picked up on them. But um, I think I might. No, have I put mean in, you can. I'm if, looking if through. If you've the got book. the right, if this you're in the right group, you can probably get away with it. And Absolutely. And, but I, I can certainly empathize how you wouldn't want to put those into the Wargaming campaign book. And there's that, mm. there's always that hesitancy of yeah. doing a, you know, there's a fine line between clever and going into jokey and then yeah, being hackneyed. Course. Yeah, you know, I mean, one and, of the things, one of the things I've never done, for example. I've got, you know, sorry to anyone out there who's done it. I am fed up of seeing imaginations peopled with beer brands, mm-hmm. right? German, everything with German or Czech beer. You know, come on, people, get out a dictionary or something. <laughs> Bit more imagination out there, because otherwise you're going to get an awful lot of kind of Hofbräu hussars kind of thing. I've, do you know what? As I've been sitting here, Jay, I have just checked the Wargaming Companion, and to my enormous relief <laughs> I didn't use any of the shall we say fruitily named units <laughs> thank god for that uh, no 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 I've got I've got the the Fernschuss artillery which just means they can shoot a long way Fernschuss yeah. right uh, and I've got the Kleidermacher Jäger which is the tailors but fortunately everything else you've got von Schmidt von Schapke von Valeri that's all perfectly neutral <laughs> thank yeah. god well I mean <laughs> you, and, you can, and the thing is you can be you know it, I didn't I didn't intend on get, getting into imaginations as much as we as much as we are, I, I should have known better talking to you, though. Um, <laughs> you know, my my own imagination is the you know the Grand Duchy of Wurstzaug, which Absolutely. you know is, you know the the sausage suckers. You know, they're we basically like this. they're they're basically Germans, you know. And yeah. of course, one of my one of my colonels is uh, Graf von Zenf. And mustard. Uh, that's yep, Colonel Mustard. Colonel mustard, yeah. <laughs> So, Absolutely, uh, and and you can you can have fun with stuff like that without getting jokey necessarily. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the thing and is, you can yeah. also, and the thing is also you you want to inhabit some type of plausibility yes. to your to your campaign if if you yeah. are going an imaginations route. Yeah. And that that's you know if you're gonna do something clever be clever but don't be jokey i guess would be my would be my advice there's there's also the thing jay that when when your project gets as big as my project is you run out of the jokey stuff really early on yeah and i'm sure i can't even remember when i first started doing my imagination stuff back in 
oh my god 1980 what was it 82 or thereabouts i was first thinking about these things and i already had this notion that well you know over the winter of the 18th century people would catch flu and die and that kind of stuff and so i was doing this kind of random dice roll thing and i remember there was obviously an epidemic one year and probably in about 1741 in my calendar and a whole load of the more stupidly named commanders just got wiped out right so um i then so then i was into immediately having to come up with new names and get more inventive with well what am i going to call these people so i did start referring to dictionaries and atlases and the local newspapers and stuff because i was i was living in augsburg at the time in germany and just uh getting more inventive with the language and and naming people more inventively even in the more recent campaigns like we were doing grand prix and uh, grand Ries, right uh and gelderstark which is kind of dutch i man there's online dictionaries and it really doesn't take much to go to a dictionary and come up with something that you think might be a silly idea like mr Potwasher or whatever uh <laughs> and um sure enough there's a translation of pot washer and if you write it in a certain way it could look like someone's name you know sure um and it's just so it becomes amusing it becomes a bit like an in joke that those people who are prepared to make the effort to you know look at what you've written and think oh that what does that i wonder what that really means there's a little extra kind of easter egg or joke for them right. to be had you know Right. But yes, anyway, we have kind of dwelled on imaginations because of the creation of this huge map where I'm demonstrating sure. people how to make maps. And that is just one uh, kind of example from the book of where it's, you know, it goes way beyond what I wrote in the compendium. Because obviously in the compendium, as as we said, you know, it was just a really looking now, it was only a few pages about campaigns in what was what. 520 page book right whereas this in this looks you know in its entirety uh in at campaigns uh i mean i've in terms of chapter i've got you know following an introduction i've got the first thing i do in this book is i look at a number of real historical campaigns to get people used to the idea of you know someone who's relatively new to the hobby obviously might not quite understand what we mean by campaign so in fact one of the very first things i do in the book is well how do you define a campaign you know right i was going to ask that because i mean you know as as we move forward in history Mm. that line between a battle and a campaign becomes quite blurry you know if you know john keegan you know you know thank god for john keegan right he Mm -hmm. uh his great great book the face of battle yeah really well it takes if you haven't read it yet you need to go read it i'm sure you have henry yeah uh, yeah waterloo and the somme wasn't it yeah and yeah. it describes each as individual discrete battles but of course you know as we're as we're mm. taking a look at at it you know agincourt was you know at most what about five six hours if that and then yeah waterloo was all day but you could you know you could arguably include quattro bra in that as well yeah yeah and then the psalm oh my gosh how long was the psalm you know yeah, yeah exactly months and yeah. we we call that a battle now but you know was it a battle or was it really a campaign you know i i would probably consider it a campaign but yeah uh, it's um 
I, one of the th things that uh, looking at, if you like, the definition of a campaign is, you know, it's it's a series, excuse me, a series of related actions that require a concerted effort towards a single future goal, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, there are different ways of looking at it, but it, it, it there is this distinct difference between a, a battle, um, even though a battle might last, you know, as you just described there, it, it could be anything from, it could be minutes, you know, uh, you know, or certainly, you know, an hour or two uh, at the at one end up to uh, potentially months at, at the other end, um, but. Um, the, the three I look at as my examples, uh, the battle and well, the campaign and battle of Marathon uh, in ancient Greeks and Persians, mm -hmm. um, where essentially there's a short, it's a relatively short campaign. You know, the the the, the Persians coming over, the Greeks trying to organise themselves. Uh, the the Persians are actually attacking two places. There's a there's an island as well that they're that, with a fortress on that they're attacking, and then they send part of their force to land on the Greek mainland, which is the bit that the the Greeks get together and then defeat at the Battle of Marathon and kick the Persians out again. Right. right. So it's it, it's quite a short campaign. You know, we're talking about a, a, a matter of days or weeks at the most. Then I go to the English Civil War, the the the, battle, the campaign leading up to the Battle of Master Moor in sixteen forty three, which is it turned out to be kind of the, the turning point of the English Civil War. Uh, there is a quotation that you know think that it's almost like the king could do no wrong before the Battle of Master Moor, and then had no chance after it. Um, and it follows a campaign led by the famous Prince Rupert. Um, mm -hmm. Who and that was one of the fascinating things, you know. I, I knew something about Marathon before I wrote about it in the book, but Master Moore, I was kind of I wanted something that was from that kind of middle mid range of history, you know, Renaissance to horse and musket. And I I nearly wrote about Salamanca, which is one of my favourites, but mm -hmm. actually I got I thought yeah, you know you know for, almost from my own point of view to learn something new myself, I'll sure. write about something that people wouldn't ne necessarily. Expect me to write about which is the english civil war and it turned out to be fascinating absolutely fascinating um and an extraordinarily brilliant campaign that ended in disaster uh there's no other way of putting it um at Prince Rupert's march up to relieve the siege of York in the north of England and the various kind of uh, coalition of, uh, of forces, uh, you know, on the side of Parliament uh, and the Scots and so forth, you know, uh, trying to resist it. And it all went terribly wrong um, at the Battle of Master Moor, uh, which could it could have swung the other way, but, you know, it didn't. Uh, so that I found right. absolutely fascinating, um, and then uh, t uh, t so that's kind of the mid-range one where there's quite a lot of campaigning because uh, Rupert marched his men from Oxford down in the kind of southwest of England all the way up to York in Yorkshire um, <clears throat> over a matter of weeks. But then I I thought, well, I want something much more modern as well to describe. Just what you've touched on there, which is, you know, like with the Battle of the Somme, what's this differentiation between a battle and a campaign? 
right. I decided to go for France in 1940 and follow uh, Rommel and the 7th Panzer Division. Okay. Which again was... It's funny, I knew... I thought I knew a fair amount about France in 1940, but I actually I knew more about kind of Guderian and his mob uh, a bit further south and, and the, you know, the, the other panzer divisions that got probably more publicity at the time. But Rommel, oh my God, you know, I what I knew about Rommel, I'd mainly knew from his desert campaigns, Jay. Right. Oh, the guy was a genius, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it the most extraordinary uh, leading commander. There's a, there was, in a, in my research, I came across an absolutely fantastic quotation. Uh, the Seventh Panzer Division became known as the Ghost Division because yeah. n- not only did the enemy, the, you know, the French and the British they were never quite sure where he was his own high command quite often wasn't at all sure where he was and there was this great moment where the 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 commander of the the army corps uh, sent a message down the line the germans had this this fantastic communication system absolutely brilliant that's worth studying in itself <clears throat> they used this kind of very brief code you know very short messages a bit mm. like tweets actually twitter they would have loved twitter um there's this message this message went down the line basically saying you know where's rommel <laughs> and uh after a few minutes the uh, the curt message came back up front in tank right <laughs> simple as that absolutely brilliant and that says that says so much about the man himself first of all well he's not going to waste too many words you know basically piss off stop bothering me right i'm yeah. i'm fine secondly <laughs> he is where he believed he had to be which was literally in one of the lead tanks in the lead formation right at the front of the spear as it advanced because he knew that it was critical for him to be able to see and react to events not just hour by hour or even minute by minute by but second by second he needed to this whole concept of blitzkrieg where he knew it would only work if literally he was one of, in one of those fingers feeling its way forward against the enemy defences and right. f- f- being right there at the moment where it touched and oh, oh, there's resistance here. Right. Screen that off. Go round it. Cut them off. You know, this whole concept of Blitzkrieg where you don't say, oh, right, well, the enemy's the enemy's in that farmhouse there, so let's let's sit down and besiege the farmhouse. No, you black the farmhouse, screen it off, and rush past it, so then it's them on the defensive because you've cut them off from their supplies, right? Right. Um, just fantastic, this mixture of strategic nous in the planning, but then also this tactical brilliance right there at the sharp end where he's literally trundling around and because this was 1940 most of the time he was in one of those little panzer 38 t's 
because that's what the 7th Panzer Division had just been equipped with. You know, hmm. that was counted as an upgrade from Panzer II's, don't forget, yeah. at the time. You know, oh, this yeah. is one of the things I love about early war. You know, it means there's no super weapons here. There's no super... Many of the French and, and British tanks were considered superior. You know, you've got oh, the yeah. big old lumbering Matilda that, you know, would take an 88mm shell to go through it. And you had the great big French Char Bs and Renault Watnets that, you know, really thick armour and very respectable guns in them, you know. Um, but the Germans literally ran rings around them. So this, you know, I, this is, was fascinating to me learning all this. And I just thought, well, of those those three kind of uh campaigns uh the first of which very much centered on a single battle the second leading up to master Moore, there were a number of smaller actions and kind of siege and capture place things and then master Moore as, as the as the crucial battle um and then the seventh panzer division in france where you've got much more like you're describing you've got this continuous little actions but it's a campaign because there are little actions that then move on to other actions and other actions but you've got over a you know not a huge period of time what was it about three weeks or something they managed to do it two or three weeks but they destroyed the french and british uh uh armies by just cutting them to pieces and and they didn't care which enemy division they came up against they weren't saying oh right well we had better align ourselves with the third french army it's like no we don't care what where that unit's from just blat it and move on right. um which um gives people an insight into what i think is one of the joys of campaigning which is uh you've got to be more than just a good tactical commander you've got to learn and understand how tactics becomes grand tactics becomes strategy and how those things kind of swing backwards and forwards and you have to have mm -hmm. your finger on the pulse of uh, of which stage you're at at any moment and what the opportunities are what it means to realize Oh, we've got no enemy in front of us. Now, right. is that worrying or is that an opportunity? Does that mean, oh shit, we've lost the enemy? Right. <laughs> oh dear, they might be round our flank or something. Or does this mean, right. oh my God, we could press on here, gain ground, yeah. you know? So there's yeah, absolutely. all. And I think there's an interesting distinction to be made also with a historical campaign yep. and a war game campaign. Yep. Because within the within the purview of a war game campaign, you could have a single battle yep. that is you know recognized as a battle, and you could have that as a war game campaign. The one that immediately jumps to my mind is Gettysburg. Right. Absolutely. You know, you've got three distinct days of fighting. You you might have yeah. some skirmishing within, you know, during the nighttime periods, yeah. but. You've got three distinct days with very different operations going on on all three days. Yeah. And then you've got different sections of the battlefield yeah. that e could each be gamed in turn depending upon the, the level. I mean, you could... The, the level you want to play. I mean, if you if you really put your mind to it, you could, you could do a pretty successful war game campaign 
you know, over the span of even a dozen different sessions doing yeah. Gettysburg. But of it's course. it's you know, it's a war games campaign, but it's you know, just a single battle in in, in history. Yeah, and and also uh, I mean, one of the things I, yeah, I, 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 in the book I talk at length about uh, making choices about what kind of campaign you want, um, okay. and what the possibilities and the options are. I mean, it's, uh, to be honest, there's very little in the book, almost nothing, where, and I hope, in fact, there's absolutely nothing where I say, well, you must do this. Right. Uh, there's n at no point am I ever saying right this is the only way to do it never because I know well that's foolish and just not true <laughs> right because as soon as you know in the course of and let's let's remember now this is now four years old I've been writing this darn thing um, every time I thought I might have pinned down oh well that seems yeah that's the idea I should put forward um, it slipped away or I've, I've, I've come across something else where someone said oh yes but or what about this as an alternative so my I see my role in producing this book is look look guys here is just a shed load of ideas you know this is what's worked for me over the years but also i'm introducing and and making it clear here's some ideas that i've seen that other people have had and i'm not pretending that they're my ideas you know you might want to try this well here's an idea a b or c you know there's a for example when it comes to maps just momentarily i love creating detailed maps that could look like you've taken them out of a page of an atlas that's to me that's because i love cartography and in fact i'm a member of an online group called the cartographers guild where there's a load of people who they produce mainly fantasy maps you know for fantasy novels games that kind mm -hmm. of stuff sure. some of these things I, I they just make me want to cry they're so beautiful absolutely exquisite works of art but i know there's other people who a haven't got the time to do that or B, just simply don't have the inclination to do that. Or D, mm -hmm. think, why should I bother doing that? I don't, uh, that, I'm, that's of no interest to me. I just want to see campaigns as a way of generating games of toy soldiers, right? Generating battles. Fantastic. There's a guy who used to write, write uh, articles when I was running the various magazines, a guy called Jim Webster who's uh, an English guy and he is well known I think he's primarily an ancient gamer but he's well known for coming up with very clever campaign ideas based on playing cards where there's no real map at all but you can just draw a playing card and say oh right well that represents this that or the other brilliant kind of almost completely abstract solution to the problem and I include that kind of thing in the book so you know that because that's important the other thing is yes how how much time and effort do you and the other people who are going to be involved in the campaign actually want to put in to this campaign right. um and the answer ranges anything between yeah okay we've got henry hyde over in one corner in the blue corner <laughs> he's completely mad and he's going to name <laughs> He's going to give a name to each single individual of the 30 million inhabitants of his subcontinent, right? <laughs> That's at the one end of the spectrum, shall we say. At the other end of the spectrum is someone who says, I don't care about any of that. 
just you know I, I, effectively I just want to have a series of link games where okay the casualties from game one carry over to game two and yeah. there might be some replacements right along that spectrum there's a huge amount of stuff and uh, in terms of the 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 what you might call the 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 organizational level of the game so this could be a gang of um robbers in a wild west setting right mm -hmm. and so it's a, it's like a role play campaign so you've got like your your gang of five bandidos trying to evade the local sheriff and the u.s marshal and and get away with the loot from a series of bank robberies right right that's a campaign at one end up to here's me marching armies of tens hundreds who knows of thousands of people across the the the, the vast expanse of dahlia and chindrastan to conquer and rule the world you know that those are two massive extremes in between that as you said there's any there's any number of permutations right. one of the things i i came well, across you know, you could you could view uh depending on how you want to do it you could view like a blood bowl or dread ball mm -hmm. or guild ball season as a campaign in in another you know, you've hit the nail on the head fashion you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to like the definition of what's a campaign you could say that uh, you know if you're running a football team right and you see each season as a campaign you know, right. are we going to make it to the championships this year? Are we going to win the Super Bowl or whatever? So you have all. Thank you that... for mentioning proper football, not that soccer stuff you guys. <laughs> I was already thinking there's probably an American audience here, so be careful what you say, Henry. So <laughs> your football, the one, the football, the football, the football that uses a ball that's a bit more like our rugby ball, you know, like a proper yeah. sport. But anyway, uh, <laughs> there's, you know, you have all that in an American football and soccer millions of dollars worth of resources you know probably hundreds of millions for the, the top level clubs isn't it of dollars of resources and oh, yeah. hundreds of people all directed over the course of a season to getting up and lifting that trophy at the end of the season right yeah, yeah. and all the the, the 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 things to do with the psychology behind it making sure that the morale of the troops is maintained you know that learning uh, how can you turn around defeats you know it's all very well getting victory after victory but of course it, the going gets tough as soon as you get knocked back how do you cope with that coping with injuries casualties right casualties how quickly might those casualties recover uh, oh, yeah. you know uh, how getting reinforcements in the form of you know new players coming onto the team uh, sub yeah all all these things the parallels or a political campaign you know oh, there's absolutely. something else where we say you know a political campaign building up to an election you know it's and sometimes the surprise candidate wins we'll say no more about that right uh, i couldn't but, possibly comment couldn't possibly comment is what we're going to say there uh, but all these things are forms of of campaign so if anyone has grass trouble grasping oh what's a campaign well think of any of these other kind of options outside of the military sphere you know where you would talk in terms of a campaign the the uh, or an ad campaign you know in business you know all these things are forms of campaign the well you you mentioned I, I just want to kick in real quick yeah. you mentioned a political campaign GMT Games has a pretty clever board game 
about the 1960 presidential election, and it's called 1960, The Making of the President. And I haven't played it yet, but it's it's oh. got very, very good reviews. And, oh, uh, cool. That, that should definitely be looked at. But uh, please continue. I'm yeah, sorry. I mean, they do... No, that's, that's cool. I mean, there are... Uh, I mean, funnily enough, just as an aside, kind of like a footnote, um, I've... I've never been massively into board games other than well that's not entirely true long time ago I used to play a lot of squad leader with my mm -hmm. chum guy when we were at university and just afterwards I think we may have touched on that um, that the megalomania crept into our squad leader games which ended up having hundreds of counters in dozens and dozens of stupidly tall stacks uh, <laughs> playing across all the game boards you know it was madness um, but other uh, commands and colors people know i when i can i, I like to play commands and colors right. however frustrating it'd be sometimes i may have mentioned enough, that, I, I, I may have mentioned that game once or twice on this podcast absolutely <laughs> um so i just in the last couple of weeks i've literally made friends uh, a new friend uh online on twitter um and her name's katie adley hi katie if you're listening uh at katie's game corner or something i think is her twitter handle um and it turned we she did a really interesting blog post that was brought to my attention about how board games and war games can be really uh, useful and therapeutic for people who suffer from depression right mm -hmm. um a subject that's close to my heart for all sorts of reasons but anyway um and it turned out she lives locally and we actually met uh, last week uh, and had a coffee and we're going to meet next week and i'm going to introduce her to commands and colors <laughs> the joys and frustrations of commands and colors ancients um but she's a you know she's uh, a big board gamer and uh, gets involved in you know a much broader range of board games than i've ever played and she plays i think she describes them is the term for board gamers heavy games mm -hmm. and euro games oh, and yeah, stuff yeah. um where there's a lot there are kind of these crossovers not just wargaming there's kind of politics and industry and you know all sorts of other stuff going on as well um and so yes that's one of the interesting thing is that for someone like her someone who plays those kind of games the notion they already probably do have a quite an interesting and varied concept of what a campaign can mean mm -hmm. uh, whereas i think for a lot of people who are just tabletop war gamers where we've t our hobby tends inevitably focuses on battles right right and our struggle you know our struggle is to go from this quite and it's usually very low tactical level to embrace the concept of oh right campaigning what is that oh that's going to be difficult isn't it yeah it, uh, right where and, and i think or as i just go ahead finish your thought i'm sorry i was just going to say oh, sorry i was just going to say jay that for, that for a lot of board games it's often the other way around that for someone like katie uh and people who are used to those kind of big concept board games uh it's more difficult to adjust down to oh so we're just going to be playing with you know a few battalions of something here that's oh i'm not used to that right, right? uh they were working from opposite ends of the spectrum anyway sorry Jay, no, you finish what you're gonna well, say well one thing that we as miniature war gamers tend to do that and that is if there aren't any type of for lack of a better term artificial forces working 
we're quite happy mm. to push our plastic and metal legions well past the breaking point and fight them to the last yeah. man if at all possible. And that's very mm. rarely the case in real life. You are yeah. more likely to have commanders voluntarily pull their units out of a situation if they see it's completely untenable. And why is that? Yeah. Not because they have a particular uh, love or affection for those troops, although they might. No, they need to preserve those forces. They need to preserve those resources for continued follow-on operations. And a campaign is one way of getting us to play more realistically. And yes. you know it's going to happen in a game. In fact, there's a there's a term for it amongst the fantasy and sci-fi players, or the I caution the use of the word sci-fi, more the sci-fantasy, the space opera players, mm. of tabling. Mm. You know, I, I tabled my opponent, or I got tabled. You know, where every single model in your force is removed from the table. And wow. it very rarely, in real life anyway, happens that way. And mm. I, I'm very interested in ways of encouraging more realistic... I hate to say generalship, but more realistic mm. play on the part of the tabletop commander. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's, of course, to be fair, there are two ways of doing that. One way is through good morale rules, yeah. reaction tests uh, in a tabletop war game. And I think that historical gamers are probably more used to that, that um, there are certain periods, you know, most periods of history probably where <clears throat> there comes a, a breaking point. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I mean, I know with my own rules, but with black powder, for example, that there's a kind of uh, not just a unit breaking point but a brigade breaking point and probably an army breaking point as it was as I played it where you 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 know you, uh, no commander <clears throat> with a brain in his head unless in absolutely extreme circumstances of course we must always put that proviso but no commander would you know let his force take you know more than 50% casualties for sure and probably a great deal less than that and in a campaign <clears throat> you're quite right this is where it becomes obvious to a player that um, just because you've got this set down battle here um, it, this isn't necessarily going to or shouldn't result in the complete destruction of either my own or my opponent's force <coughs> excuse me there will come a point where to one or both sides it's obvious that oh you know that either i've been outmaneuvered mm -hmm. therefore this position is no longer tenable right or <clears throat> the 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 level of casualties that i'm taking and the rate at which i'm taking them makes it obvious that this is pointless and i need to preserve my army because this is just day one <laughs> of what might be months of conflict right right and <clears throat> there are a number of ways that you can reduce your casualty rate one of which yeah sure you can dig holes in the ground like they did in World War One, right, guys? Big, uh, dig a great big long hole that's a thousand miles long, and we'll call it a trench. Or you can retreat from that position. You can say, do you know what? This piece of ground is worth nothing. 
in human terms it is just a piece of ground it is worth absolutely nothing and therefore we need to move away right there are circumstances where of course <clears throat> conversely and i was talking to my goddaughter about this in a in a campaign you might say much more likely to actually accept a thermopylae situation where okay i might be prepared to completely send this small group of men to their doom if the strategic benefits of doing so outweigh that loss right so a, a small force holding up a much much larger force that you know and that small force accepting that you know we may not live to see tomorrow but in the strategic concept it will save many more lives mm -hmm. um and i think it just makes for well there's two things first of all it makes obviously i think for more interesting and meaningful tabletop encounters yes that when you do decide to set down your battle and however and it might be tiny this is the other thing you might decide well under you know in a normal club night <clears throat> i'm not interested in playing with anything less than say 12 units aside <clears throat> whereas in the campaign context oh okay it's a little skirmish and 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 you know i've got a couple of companies and you've got a squadron of cavalry and a company and maybe a gun oh yeah let's give it a go because you never know that might result actually in the capture of a useful town along a major route or right. something of that kind or a particular even the capture of of, uh, of a particular casual or of a particular personality absolutely you know an ambush of a general something of that kind you know that's the kind of thing that in a campaign it makes it come alive jay you know this is these are the kind of little incidents that f should fill your campaign newspaper which is one of those other things yeah. that's really fun to do it, you know it doesn't have to be a literally a newspaper uh, campaigns i've run it might just be a few blog posts or something but it, it adds to the general kind of uh levity of the nation mm -hmm. as it were one thing that uh have, have you played Stargrunt? By John Tufts. I haven't. No. One of the. No. I, I recommend, even if you're not planning on playing it, I definitely recommend anybody who's listening go and download uh, Stargrunt off the GZG site because it's free to download, and the morale rules in Stargrunt have mechanisms in place for you to do this exact type of thing. I've got no other way to describe it than the terms that that John does in the rules. And that's uh, part of the morale system is a mission motivation factor for your for your force, and right. your mission motivation <clears throat> factor goes into determining how your troops react to certain situations, and gotcha. it interfaces with the you know with the greater or I guess actually a lower level morale of individual squads because you can tailor the morale of the of the individual squads within your force and it's it's a really great system because it allows you to do things like okay this mission is is critical and you know yeah. the 300 knew that well they there was more than 300 anyway but the the yeah. 300 knew that they had to <laughs> you know they had to hold the pass they had to yeah. there there was no going yeah. back they had to hold the pass the 187 men inside the Alamo knew that they had to hold out as long as they could you know yeah. they they knew that they were probably going to die but they had to hold out as long as they could because 
mm-hmm. would allow Houston to to marshal forces to the south and east, for example. Sure. And yeah. that is one way where you know John recognized that you know in real life for for the most part you're not in these life and death situations where you well it is a life and death situation but you're not in these do or die situations all the time there are more yeah. you're more likely to be in a situation where oh we're taking some machine gun fire from there we probably ought to back off of that you know break contact find another yeah. way report it higher you know mm shell it to death with our battalion or or, or regimental mm. artillery assets and and go find someplace else you just said something really important there jay which is this notion of breaking contact uh, and i think that that's something that often gets overlooked for example, particularly with a reconnaissance force you know a lot of people say oh yes well there's a logical progression reconnaissance force goes forward blunders into the enemy somehow oh look they're there calls up reinforcements and somehow the the thing automatically escalates from oh look there's a platoon of guys and suddenly there's a company guy there's a battalion of guys there's a division of guys oh shit we're having a huge battle right and you know that is not how it happens you know the, the reconnaissance forces like even cavalry back in the time of the horse and musket era before you know that they are these feelers these tendrils going out to help the general if they're good at their job anyway help the general create an, a, a picture in his head of what where the enemy is and what the enemy's doing now that in itself is something that you can achieve in a campaign setting that you, you will never experience in a normal tabletop war game right right that 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 is a uh, to me in on its own you could play a camp a mini campaign all just about you know a a, a, a reconnaissance rec- put my teeth in a reconnaissance force and i think that is uh, a worthwhile benefit from campaigning in itself that um i mean i've oh god in the campaigns i've run for example it's clear to from the word go <clears throat> who the players are who know what they're doing <laughs> <laughs> and those who need some help let's put it put it kindly right those those who might unfortunately mistake uh, a line on a map uh, that's actually at the border between two countries and they might think that's actually a road and send some troops down it and inadvertently invade a neighboring country <laughs> because they didn't think to send out a reconnaissance force of a few guys first to point out yeah gov you don't want to go there right um and as an umpire you have to find hopefully amusing and not too nasty ways of reproaching that player you know <laughs> <clears throat> um as it turned out on this that particular occasion the players troops were strip shirt searched by the customs officers <laughs> of the neighboring nun- and sent back literally with their britches over their shoulders so uh that- that was one way of dealing with it. But yeah, the, 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 you know, you reward players. Well, I mean, the natural outcome of players who use reconnaissance properly is that they will be rewarded for having done so compared to the player that doesn't do that yeah. and suddenly finds themselves surrounded. Okay? Um, that's one of the joys of campaigning. Um, yeah, because, and of course, I, I, you know, if, if we look at the... Cool. 
if we look at the principles of warfare, and one of them is one of them is mass, and it's not about having the most troops. It's about having mm. not necessarily even the most troops. It's about having the most combat power at a particular mm. point. The Germans refer to it as Schwerpunkt. You know, it's yep. it's the critical point where you know the the battle will be won or lost because you know it's the, either there's a key there's key terrain there or there's a particular <clears> avenue <throat> of approach <throat> that leads right into a into a population mm-hmm. center or, or or something else and how you find that is reconnaissance and yeah, yeah you yeah. know you know Nathan Bedford Forrest said you know get their fustest with the mostest you know and yeah. that's yeah that's pretty much that's pretty much how it works. Well, it's, that, it's applying the the most combat power at a particular point, and the thing is, it's hmm. not necessarily it's not necessarily a matter of like I said, having the most combat power because a smaller force hmm. that is more agile and more adaptive can hmm. can school a larger force that is that is slower or uh, uh, less adaptable. And the you know you mentioned the nineteen forty hmm. campaign in France. That's a that's a perfect example. That arguably the Germans were outmatched both numerically and technologically, but yep. they had done their homework. They had done their well, their wargaming, for lack of a better term, and had yeah, 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 absolutely, and had found ways to maximize the effectiveness of their maneuver and their communications mm. capabilities to minimize mm. the the combat power of of the French and the British. Yeah. Absolutely, and um, I think one of the, the, the other things I wanted to say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in the book I'm writing that um, having realised that um, many, perhaps even most, um, tabletop war gamers haven't ever been called upon to think strategically before. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it dawned on me that I needed to write something about this. It, it, in fact, the <clears throat> the way it started out, I was writing about maps and the use of maps and how important maps are and what you as a general should learn or or or, or seek to learn from looking at a map. You know, because this is the other thing. A lot of again, most people you know what kind of maps have they ever used in their life these days you know unless they've been in the military or in the boy scouts or the ramblers association or something most people the only maps they look at are street maps or their sat nav right Mm -hmm. dear you know i want to go i'm here at home and i want to go to tesco supermarket on the other side of town what's the quickest way to get there and you just follow the arrow on the map turn left turn turn right at people's ability to actually use and read maps is is generally speaking is not high the most i would say most people nowadays are, you know i i was in a generation that went to school and we were taught how to read ordnance survey maps you know we mm-hmm. could understand what contours were and all these kind of things <sighs> that's not necessarily true anymore oh, no. right so so i felt it was important to explain to people right if you're presented with a map how should you interpret that map? This is a this is a critical matter when it comes to actual you know, strategic generalship. You know, it's one thing being able to look at a, a an overview map of a battlefield and say, "Oh, well, there's a good hill. Stick the artillery on that hill." But you know, 
if you've got to move your troops over a distance of 200 miles and make stops at regular points you know what should you be thinking about how should what how should you be looking at that map to make those decisions and i realized do you know what god actually this needs to be a chapter of its own right uh so i i i i in i in the end i've got a chapter called campaign generalship because it dawned on me i think some people might need some you know a basic introduction to actually how should you conduct a campaign how should you think about you know uh if you look at a map what uh what threats and opportunities can you see on that map uh, there are obvious things like if you're commanding a column of Roman legionaries that's about to think about marching through the middle of a dark forest <laughs> right uh, fans of ancients will remember the name of the Teutoburger Vault yeah. I hope Varus but, where are know, my legions is, exactly yeah this is this is kind of important you need to be aware that if you by all means by all means don't go around the outside do go through the middle of the forest but if you do so you better be thinking about this when you do mm -hmm. it right you need to be thinking about the kind of troops you've got and what their capabilities are versus the kind of troops that the enemy has got to the best of your knowledge and what kind of capabilities they have and that just because you might be good in one sort of terrain doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be good in another sort of terrain you know if you're if again if you're marching any sort of troops through an area that's dry and barren and has no water supply well really you need to think about that as a decision right mm -hmm. there is a reason why certain parts of the world like uh flanders you know like belgium holland those kind of areas northern france there are reasons why those areas have been campaigned over time after time after time over hundreds of years it's because actually you know poor inhabitants of those countries but they are perfect campaigning areas there's a ready supply of water there's no big hills that you're going yep. to go up or down <laughs> and so on and so forth right ready supply of food da 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 so this makes sense so if you're thinking of sending a, a, an army across that mountain range well you need to think hard about that but also that obviously it makes a difference not just what part of the world you're in but what time zone we're talking about because obviously there are many obstacles that would have been utterly insurmountable for an ancient's army other than yes hannibal managed to cross the alps with his with his elephants but that was an exceptional you know exceptional exceptional right. circumstance and commander very very uh, few but, flaming pigs in switzerland i note very few flaming pigs in switzerland and they have chocolate bars that hurt the top of your mouth but that's another <laughs> matter right uh so that if you're an ancient commander that many many situations would have seemed insurmountable that now you know someone like you would say well yeah we'll call in a chinook and in 20 minutes we'll be there right uh and so the, the, certainly in terms of uh, obstacles of terrain and so forth uh it's much easier to overcome those in the modern era than it was through m most of history however there are still the questions of supply of logistics oh, yeah. that is all very well being able to get a force there how are you going to support them? Oh, that's that's huge how are you going to 
it's massive how are you going to supply them what about uh, uh, ammunition uh, what about casualty evacuation all these things uh, you know, there was a, a i read some interesting stuff in the process of writing the book all about the ratio of troops at the sharp end compared to uh, support that's required mm-hmm. logistical support that's required and actually the pro- scary i mean that that nowadays it's quite often the case that it may only be something like 25 percent or less of your total force are actually you know what you would call fighting men right you know oh, it's guys much smaller pointing than that. it's much smaller than yeah that. It's... guys guys pointing barrels towards the enemy yeah the, it's tiny the uh the trigger pullers in afghanistan yeah. for example you're you're lucky if that's 10 percent yeah. And I mean then once you start counting, you know, you know your private military contractors who are just there as yeah, yeah. logistical support and your third country nationals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that that might be much lower than that. I mean the the logistics mm-hmm. tale of as it's called of a modern army yep. is is immense in the number of people who are directly involved in well, yep. pulling triggers is pretty small. I mean even on yeah. Even on the the first base I was on, Camp Stone in Herat, there was—I mean, there was a platoon of us that were, you know, that were the security forces, and we were the pretty much the trigger pullers. And there was one, yeah. there was one police mentor team that went out, and I don't think I'm not sure if they got into any scraps while we were there. And there was one embedded training team, but they, they were mostly for the core headquarters that was co-located with mm-hmm. us. So, yeah, it's. It's not all. It's not a lot of people who are out there, you know, yep. with the job of finding, fixing, and finishing the the enemy. So absolutely, and 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 what's interesting is that um, I think uh, it's almost kind of come full circle that that um, I could, there was a there's a brilliant book. Don't know if you've heard of it, Martin Van Crayfeld. It was written by called Supplying War. It was written quite a few years ago, back in the. 70s 80s mm-hmm. uh brilliant book it's um the kind of the classic book about uh logistics yes supplying war by martin van Kreevelt felt with a v i believe Kreevelt. um he's written other books in fact he wrote another book that's over here called um called war games actually um, War Games from Gladiators to Gigabytes, which he wrote fairly recently, that was pr- produced by Cambridge University Press. Let me look at a date on this one. Uh, 2013, it was published. But anyway, his most famous work, Supplying War. But anyway, because it takes me back to when, because we're still on the subject of campaigns here, yeah. when I was first doing my Wars of the Fountainian Succession, and I, because I'm mad, I was trying to work out the national budgets of Brookland <laughs> and Feltland, right? And one of the calculations I did, based on information in Martin Van Crayfeld and others that I found, was for a horse and musket army, uh, what was the, the cost of keeping it supplied? And therefore, how much supplies did it need? And I did this just for, say, a cavalry regiment. And I can't remember what the exact figures were, so I'll pluck them out of my thin air if you like let's say you've got a cavalry regiment of 500 men okay 
500 men and 500 horses. Those 500 horses each consume, I know I don't own a horse, but I would imagine they probably can consume between what, 10 and 20 pounds of fodder a day, mm -hmm. something like that. So let's say it's 20 pounds of fodder. Multiply that by 500 horses. That's an awful lot of fodder. That's like uh, 20 times 500, which is uh, 10,000 pounds of fodder a day mm -hmm. for a cavalry regiment, right? 10,000 pounds is what? That's five tons, right? So that five tons of fodder, if, it, if you're not campaigning in, a, campaigning in an area where it's open grassland and they can just, you know, Graze. forage yeah. for it, right? That means it's going to be brought with the regiment in wagons right so uh what do we say that was like how many tons did we say that was <laughs> uh five 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 tons which is going to be at least uh five wagons uh, uh five wagons five one ton wagons or ten half ton wagons a day for a single cavalry regiment right now who's pulling those wagons oh look it's more horses right so those horses have got to be fed yep. as well now multiply all that by an army where say you've got uh 50 battalions of infantry and uh 20 regiments of cavalry you know man when they say the word supply tail they really meant it mm -hmm. <laughs> because and this is why genius commanders like marlborough and others you know you would have to plan your campaign before you fought it because you would have to set up magazines along the route with sufficient supplies in case some you know it all went wrong so you would have these entire cities just stuffed to the gunnels with supplies with fodder with you know oats mm -hmm. and hay uh, uh, and uh, beef on the hoof usually uh, and mutton which meant sheep on the hoof and uh, shoes and uh, muskets and you know vast vast amounts of stores uh, just filling entire towns along the route that you intended to take which also of course meant it was kind of hard to conceal where you were thinking of going right. <laughs> in the next campaign series season or so then what you had to do is basically you had to set up redundant supply centers so keep the enemy guessing oh well okay oh look he's got supply centers going that way but he's also got supply centers going that way oh so which way is he going to go but you can't end up with you know you can only have to say two or three options rather than you know you would never be able to afford to set up enough supply centers to give yourself oh i've got 20 different options right. that'll keep them guessing you know, right um it's it's a fascinating fascinating subject but i'll come back to the point that you know for a nutter like me i love this kind of minutiae this turns me on and in fact i think uh probably it's the kind of stuff that mostly solo war gamers uh, have got the time to just kind of oh I'll, i think i'll spend the next few weeks just researching things like how many pairs of shoes did marlborough have on on the route right. down the, the to the danube you know um whereas obviously one of the jobs i try to do with the book is to say well look you know there is all this you need you kind of need to be aware that these are the factors at play yeah. here 
But here's some ideas where you can actually massively simplify this process. That actually what you can do is you can reduce it in the same way as you can reduce the complexity of combat on a tabletop game right. to a series of dice right. to a series of dice rolls, you can do the same thing with a campaign. You can say, yeah, well, okay, uh, right, supplies. How are today's supplies? One or two, oh, they're really bad. Three or four, oh, they're okay. Five or six, oh, actually, we've we've come across, uh, you know, a vineyard or or or, right. or or somewhere a shed where someone's been keeping stacks of prosciutto ham you know yeah. um and so your your troops are going to benefit from this and it's this is one of the challenges you know it's why i love this stuff right, Jay. Right. you know I hope, I hope your listeners can at least feel that even though i'm babbling i'm quite enthusiastic yeah. about this stuff is it's a level of fascination about uh about warfare that goes way above and beyond the level of fascination you can get when you're just playing tabletop games right no denying we you and i both love playing tabletop games it's great fun you know shove shove our toys around pretty looking scenery pretty looking troops fantastic that in itself is is a brilliant hobby but campaigning takes you down all these other avenues that actually make our hobby relate much more if to make it relate much more to if you like the real world right you know politics geography geology logistics uh political economy um all these things are, are hugely informative in themselves you know what we've just saying about supply you know uh, obviously in all countries and, and i think particularly in britain and america there's been times when um you know, uh, the government has announced another range of defence cuts, mm -hmm. let's say. And, you know, some people who are completely anti-war go, oh, jolly good, I'm glad to hear that. And and other others go, oh, that's terrible. Most of us somewhere in between say, okay, but really, you know, how does that make me feel about the defence of our country? So why have they made this decision? Well, military stuff is expensive. Yeah right and and certainly in the modern day it's becoming increasingly expensive when you look at this aircraft carrier uh, prince Eliz uh, princess elizabeth whatever it's that um uh, we've had built in the uk um and for every fighter jet fighter bomber jet that's going to be put on it, each one of those costs 150 million pounds mm -hmm. which is an unthinkable amount of money yeah you know for an individual that's many 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 times more than what any one of us as an individual will earn in our lifetime well, well probably, keep in mind right keep in mind how many tons of of hay and oats you need to keep that fighter fueled also absolutely <laughs> you know and that's absolutely and that's, that's just the that's just the purchase price that's not repair pieces that's not the training of the personnel yep. who maintain it that's not the training of the person yep. who's going to fly the damn thing that's not the fuel yep. that's not the you know the tools yep. required to yep. to keep it in check or keep it in uh, good repair because it can't just nip down to ace yep. hardware and buy any old screwdriver no you have to have a a tungsten tipped uh screwdriver with yep. a particular bit bit because it's not a phillips head it's some sort of weird uh, five-pointed yeah. star design. with a little hook on yeah. the end thing and 
and then and also if the damn thing does get into action every time it drops a bomb there's another tens of thousands of dollars oh yeah 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 and well just just a number that gets thrown around from time to time just the training of the average training of a person entering the the US military from when they first enlist to when they get squirted out the system on the other end of their initial entry training is one million dollars just to get them to the point where they are capable of going to a unit to begin their actual real training because no one no one gets out of basic training a trained soldier you you yeah. you come out of basic training basically to the point where you're not an instant liability <laughs> yeah. like, you're not going to embarrass yourself. Well, you you still you're, you're definitely going to embarrass yourself, but Actually, you know yeah. you're not a civilian anymore. Yeah, and yeah. so it's yeah. I mean, there's if you want to be completely and totally crazy mad, uh, you can go that route. Um, but there's it's it's just a uh, an entire level of accounting and you know okay so you got to train this person well what does it cost to train a person well we got to pay people to train them we got to pay people to repair the housing that they're going to be in we have to pay for the housing for the electricity and the cooling and the heating and the you know asbestos removal and (laughs) and everything in between it's you know they say that the department of defense has never had an audit because it's unauditable and i think that's yeah it's probably partly true because there's just so much that goes into it and it's cool. it's maddening where would you begin and by the time you've got halfway through the prices will all have gone up anyway yeah so <laughs> well you'd mention we're kind of getting off well you had mentioned simplification and yeah i want to bring us back on track <laughs> <laughs> um so i want to get us back on track and you mentioned simplification and i think there's one and I don't know if you talk about this in the book, but um, you know there are a number of commercial operation or strategic level board games that one could use yeah. as, for oh, lack yes. of a better term, your your campaign system. Well, Mighty Empires from Games Workshop, for example, it was designed from the yeah, yeah, yeah. from the get go as Warhammer Fantasy battle games. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's there's a it's, it's, go ahead. I was just going to say, yes, Mighty Empire is sitting on my table over there, and yes, it gets a mention in the book, unavoidably. Yeah. Um, the, you know, it, uh, for people who don't know, Mighty Empires, um, it's a hex-based system where literally, however, they produce the hexes in plastic. They're yeah. two-sided, and they've got, you know, lumps and bumps and stuff on them, so you can paint them to represent um, hills and mountains and valleys and rivers and forests and whatever you like and the idea was that it's a campaign generation system could be used as a land exploration system as well you know there's there's a number of ways it could be used and to be honest uh, it gets a mention in the book uh because so far but so far i haven't actually had a chance i certainly haven't had a chance to paint them up yet i'm hoping before i finish designing the book i will have done so so i can take some pictures because it's rather lovely um, and there are little buildings you can put on yeah. it, like uh, wizards' towers and castles and cities and uh, little flags. I can't remember what the little flag. I think the little flags are just to indicate ownership. Right. You know, if it's a red team and a blue team kind of thing. Um, and it can be used for multiplayer and what have you. The the actual 
essentially what uh, I think we need to point out is that in the basic form out of the box as it were it's just a, a game generating system it's kind of a it, it's an add-on that gives you a kind of a bit more background territorial land grabbing kind of background to uh, to your games to your tabletop right. Warhammer games and it's it's a great idea I can't remember what it was but again I think it's gone the way of specialist games oh, now yeah. though hasn't it Jay, oh, yeah. it's, it's been it's been out long of production. out of production for for a very long yeah. time. But what I'm hoping, oh, I'm taking a deep breath here. Don't oh, be careful what you promise, Henry. But what I'm hoping is one of the things that's going to come with the book via the website that there's going to be with the book, because uh, I have bought the domain name wargamingcampaigns.com, oh. uh, is I'm going to be uh, creating a uh, a hex based campaign generating system. Oh, now, I've also I've already through my Gladius books things. I've already done some kind of battlefield yes. squares. Right now, I may well do an extension to that, which basically upscales everything. So it's a, it's a uh, a system using squares, but obviously with more stuff on each square. So instead of half a hill and a bit of a river, there may well be you know a town, a forest, a, you know. So you can use those to create a campaign map as you go in a kind of exploratory way. Uh, I'm, but I'm also hoping to be able to do something hex-based as well, along the lines of Mighty Empires, but kind of geared a bit more to my uh kind of european imaginations type thing. sure if there's demand you know if people said to me oh god you know would you consider doing some deserty type stuff or whatever sure you know uh wh when the time comes people let me know what i want and the whole point is through my gladius publishing arm everything's going to be low cost it's all going to be you know digitally produced so yeah. you can download pdfs or whatever print it out yourself on card or paper and you know make it whatever size you want so, um, anyway, so that's kind of an idea that I've got based on the Mighty, Mighty Empires idea. Mm -hmm. and But there are other um, board games, yes, that of course can be used uh, for campaign uh, purposes alongside tabletop battles. Now, oh my God, going back a few years now, uh, if he's listening, hello there, Bob uh, in Edmonton, mm -hmm. who um, used to write for Battle Games. Um, he, oh my God, he did an article, oh gosh, a while ago. I think he was using, was it 1776 or something like that as a campaign generator for battles? Yeah, that would make sense because uh, he was looked, very much into the AWI. That's right. And um, there are others. There's a game I've got over there, uh, Frederick, which is based on Frederick the Great mm -hmm. in the Seven Years' War. And, of course, there are others. I mean, people who are more familiar with board games than I am will know that there are strategic-level games that are potentially ideal as a, uh, as a way of dealing with kind of the map element, uh, map movement element, uh, logistics element of a war games campaign. So you can combine using a board game, which then leads to miniatures games. Right. Um, and 
as I say, this is just something I'm going to be I'm mentioning kind of in passing in the book because that's almost like a, hot, a subject all of its own. Right. And at some point, I have to stop writing the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it was with the Wargaming Compendium. The longer it goes on, the more things occur to me. Oh, I could write about this. Yeah. I'm already at, what, 95,000 words and a, and, a, and a map that's, what was it, 2,000 by 3,000 miles. <laughs> I need to stop. <laughs> um, and there are, and of course, there are computer games as well. You know, we oh, have, yeah. in, uh, again, you know, there's so many potential options when it comes to war games campaigns. And and pardon the pun, but it does just need your imagination. You know, you need to have an open mind when you come across something to to be able to think laterally and think, oh, do you know what that that looks you know interesting in its own right but wow yeah i could use that for this you know to do with the wargaming campaign one of the things i do uh because i'm old and sad and you know i like old school stuff is i i collect old war games magazines yeah and i've got copies of uh military modeling battle for wargamers practical wargamer and so on and so forth war games illustrated going back donkey's years and of course from time to time, uh, people have written about campaigns. I mean, Tony Barth's Hyboria, of course, ran for years in military modelling and, and Battle for Wargamers. Um, and uh, another person who I mention every time I come on your podcast is the late Charles Grant, mm -hmm. who obviously was famous at well, C.S. Grant with his tabletop teasers, but Charles Grant used to have a series called On Matters Military. And he occasionally did uh, mini campaigns. And of course, there is this wonderful halfway house where, oh, yeah, you want something a bit more than just linked tabletop war games, but you want something not as, oh my God, Henry, don't expect me to do anything like you're doing. Well, there's the mini campaign. Like you mentioned Gettysburg there. Right. Or any other major battle. You could have a mini campaign of the 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 kind of the battlefield area plus you know a few miles around it so it encompasses the routes that those tro troops needed to take to arrive at that battlefield mm -hmm. might it have been possible for example that um the that wellington might have chosen a different piece of ground to to wait for napoleon um any number of things what um the one that i always remember with charles grant he did the uh julius caesar's crossing of the rhine okay uh when he was uh you know in the in amongst all the germanic tribes and stuff and he's in um battle for war gamers he's done this wonderful thing uh, uh we're setting up what you could say is a series of link games or, or mini campaign where you've got the Romans and they've got a uh, a bridging train a pontoon bridging train uh, and they want to cross the Rhine but across the you know the other side of the Rhine there's all this forested area and various different Germanic war bands and of course the Romans don't know exactly where the Germanic war bands are and the Germanic war bands don't know precisely where the Romans are intending to try and cross the river right. they know they're going to try and cross it somewhere so 
it's actually this kind of brilliant little thing that led to a number of kind of minor encounters and then suddenly there's the Romans trying to throw the pontoon bridge across the River Rhine as fast as they can and you know try and protect the troops doing the bridging and then gets an advance card across create a bridgehead got to defend that bridgehead the Germans have suddenly realized oh my god they're, they're there they're there let's go get them so really exciting stuff that that for a few weeks in a in a war games club you know provided some really exciting action right now that that's enough you don't we don't need to think in terms of as you know okay my wars the Falcon succession has been going since 1982 and it's like it's continued <laughs> to the day i die right and people might think oh my god if that's wargaming campaigning forget it you know there's no way right. i'm doing that it doesn't doesn't have to be anything like that it could be something that oh yeah uh, dan Mers, dan mersey lovely guy who's writing ludicrous numbers of books for pen and sword at the moment i think he's had four out in the last four months but he's um back in one of the early issues of battle games he did a dba campaign in a day i don't know if you remember that mm. jay um but basically a series of uh, kind of linked DBA games. I think it was Dark Ages stuff. I can't remember exactly. It might have been the, to do with the Battle of Malden or around about there. But that, you know, if you think of you, if you're using a rule system like DBA, where you get really quick games that might only last half an hour, an hour, two hours at the most, right? right? Well, you think actually, okay, we could do a mini campaign that might involve three or four, or even five battles in the space of like. A, a, a literal day you know or a couple of games in an evening oh absolutely uh, and so that then then the notion of a campaign doesn't become this thing that oh my god we're gonna have to invest you know huge amounts of time and keep people on board with the project for months and months and months which is you know one of the challenges campaign no it could be you know uh, there's four or five of us at the club interested in doing this we can do it in the space of a couple of weeks at the club Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, a perfect game for that, of course, would be, as I look to the left on the book, on the bookcase, Commands and Colors, Napoleonics or Ancients or Battle yeah. Lore or, you know, any number of the other variants, you know, uh, Memoir 44, The yeah. Great War, etc. You know, it'd be perfect for that. Um, well, I talked, yeah. I've talked about doing uh, a little bit of Imagination's work with uh, Travel Battle from the Perrys. Yeah, you know, it's and it's one of those things where yeah, you could sit down in an afternoon or an evening and knock out four or five games to further the campaign and and see how things go. And they don't and they don't necessarily have to be the uh, the huge world spanning economic and political uh, juggernauts that <laughs> that you could Absolutely. do. It could just be a series of linked campaigns or linked linked yeah. scenarios and. I think, yeah. you know, again, you know, think, thankfully the the good folks at Two Fat Lardies with the pint-sized <laughs> campaign. The good fat folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's not yeah. get into that because we can... <laughs> I dare say a significant no, portion of the listenership probably... <laughs> you can no, apply that name like that, I have to... They're not terribly fat, actually. I have to say, the two fat lardies, when I met them, really, they're not that lardy. Yeah. Uh, they're quite svelte. Uh, Nick and Rich, if you'll, you get a chance to listen to this, uh, take the compliment while yeah. you can. But yes, you, the pint-sized campaigns and ladder campaigns, that kind of yeah. stuff, absolutely. And, and everything in between. And I think, again, this this illustrates the 
what I refer to as the big tent aspect of this hobby is that there's mm. just about something for everybody if they are interested mm. in recreating or simulating or devising historical or even fantasy or science fiction battles on a tabletop. Yeah. And you can do, yeah. you know, you can do it however you want, and no one's going to come up and say, well, I think that you're not doing this right. Well, you can tell them to go find another game to play. Or yeah. something a little bit more, you know, a little <laughs> something a little bit ruder than that if you want to. <laughs> and that's, but, you know, yeah. I, it's just, I, it's why I love this hobby, because there is something for everybody. And my, what I do in my corner of the hobby doesn't have to match up with yours, and that's okay. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, you know, I think probably we've we've um, looking at the clock as well. We've probably sort of uh, talked uh, for long enough, um, and I, obviously, I don't I want don't say too much conclusive about what's going to be in my book because that's not finally been decided yet. That's okay. But I'm obviously from from my point of view, I'm just kind of hoping that. Um, you know people will understand that what i'm trying to do with my book is not be prescriptive at all but right. basically i i'm just inviting people to join me on this you know journey of exploration uh really that it's been for me and I, and i think that's one of the reasons why i've i've enjoyed writing this book is because um like campaigning itself it, it, it has been a journey of discovery for me that I've whereas at first you know I look up on my shelf and we haven't even mentioned it yet in the show how could we not have mentioned it in the show you know I look up on my shelf of old school books and there's Don Featherstone's War Games campaigns uh, War Game campaigns and Charles Grant wrote a book about War Game campaigns but actually there's not been much uh, literature in the war games hobby specifically written about campaigns which is one of the reasons that motivated me motivated me to write the book in the first place of course jay it's like wow gosh uh no there's there's not been much there and certainly not for quite some time so to a certain extent yeah you know uh, i i am standing on the shoulder of giants you know the featherstones and grants of this world who've done a lot of campaigning tony bath who've you know did a lot of campaigning and wrote extensively about it at the time but also discovering all these other voices and realizing that it, because it is such a big and nebulous subject you know even the way we define a campaign what a campaign means from one person to the next ranging from oh it's like a, a, it's like a, a, a dungeons and dragons campaign mm -hmm. you could say here's here's a, a couple of heroes and some henchmen going through a series of dungeons discovering treasure and beating up monsters right. you know on the very lowest scale up to vast you know in the book i've written about sci-fi campaigns that could be interplanetary sure. intergalactic right you know interdimensional um and th the possibilities are vast and endless but it the excitement for me is discovering along the way the, the sheer diversity of approaches 
that people have taken ranging from you know people like me i love maps you know i i i love cartography i love almost kind of being able to run my fingers over the map and feel the lumps and bumps Mm -hmm. of the mountains and valleys and stuff to other people who just want something completely abstract are quite happy to kind of delegate a lot of stuff to something on the computer you know a piece of software and that's absolutely fine you know and and that's what makes it exciting and that's what i hope means that uh people will understand it gives it a big a broad audience because it doesn't matter who you are as a gamer in my opinion as you're saying there's going to be something in this something along that massive sliding scale that uh, whoever you are you're going to be able to go oh actually that's quite interesting oh yeah i could do that that's manageable yeah. i could try that or someone at the other end might looking for more of a challenge might go oh yeah well i could do even better or bigger than that well be my guest fantastic off you go and you know let us know you know one of the things i i'm hoping to do with the the website once the book's you know done and out i'm hoping to kind of encourage a community of people who get excited about campaigns and hear about well you know how are they doing it what what are they doing what ideas are they trying stuff succeeds other stuff might fail but it's always fascinating to hear and see what people are doing right right um so that's kind of it really jay yep <laughs> yeah i think i think that's a good good place to wrap up even though you know previously we said that flaming pigs discussion was a place to stop but we went ahead and muscled through <laughs> that this time but for crying out loud that was like 15 minutes in i can't have a 15 minute episode not when henry hides on so as and i had i had sworn i was going to stay quiet this time Jack. well you know those of you with your henry hyde podcast bingo cars at home i'm just going to go ahead and say banana oil um henry as always it's been a tremendous pleasure chatting with you today thank you very much for coming on the show once again oh thank you jay it's been a joy as always yeah it's it's anyone who who creates a podcast knows it's always fun to to see where henry's gonna take you and the show notes be damned but (laughs) (laughs) but uh i was (laughs) i was actually going back and forth with neil shook of course he does the meeples and miniatures podcast and no excuse me it was jonathan reinhardt of the uh of the uh wargaming recon <laughs> podcast i said <laughs> I, oh I, I need to go prepare my show notes for henry and it's going to be more than just get henry started <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm looking at you sh- i did look at your show notes and um fun i mean we could probably knock off a couple of things off your show notes very quickly uh okay which was uh what do you say oh yeah when do you expect to get work on the shot steel and stone standalone book done uh eventually that's the (laughs) answer to that one uh no no uh funnily enough um and this will be brief i am currently starting to play test um other idea other periods for shots in stone so yesterday fun of i was playing a game of marburians mm-hmm. with my mate guy uh which uh, is interesting because it is fascinating anyone who's you've kind of created a gaming system like the shots in stone system and you think well okay what is it about the marburian period say that makes it distinctly marburian is it is it does it come down to the rules mechanics or actually 
as we're coming to the conclusion, is it actually to do with the types of troops that are just, you know, were used at that time? Mm -hmm. That obviously, if you've still got caracoling cavalry and artillery that doesn't gallop around the battlefield, and you know, dragoons who do occasionally actually still dismount and do stuff, you know, that does already make a very different flavour of a game. So, to a certain extent, it's troop type rather than necessarily the mechanics. Same going the other way towards, say, the American Civil War. You know, you, you cavalry behave very differently than they had done during right. the Napoleonic Wars. You right. didn't get cold steel charges generally. You know, you had uh, breech loading and, uh, and rifled weapons, which obviously makes the lethality of the battle area uh, very different, and therefore troops are likely to behave rather differently. You have, you know, a, a different kind of um you know it's more to do with the psychology of the troops you have like militias who might suddenly run away but then you might come back again and then run away and then you know all that sort of stuff so this is interesting those are in progress but those i'm going to be self-publishing right uh you know i'm i'm in com uh, had conversation with my guy at pen and sword and we decided that even though they had originally commissioned me to do my war games rules via them that actually pen and sword aren't particularly good at selling war games rules they're great doing books about war gaming mm -hmm. but actually what gamers want when they buy a set of rules isn't kind of a hardback book kind of thing right. they want something that's more like you know look at the black powder series that's what's popular with people isn't it it's kind of a4 format pretty pictures that kind of stuff um so that's kind of what's happening with shot steel and stone um and you had a final question um is there a genre you're not particularly keen on um you said you, yeah 40k left me absolutely cold but sci-fi actually i am potentially really interested mm. in um, I used to play a lot of kind of sci-fi computer games. I read sci-fi novels. I love sci-fi movies. Um, uh, Battlestar Galactica is one of my all-time favourite TV series. Serenity and Fire Firefly, I love those. Um, so uh, you know, Star Wars, blah 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 blah. I you know, so sci-fi as a genre, I love. It's just that up to this point. Um, I haven't found um, uh, 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 how should we say a route to sci-fi gaming that I find satisfying I think that's the fair thing to okay. say although I did have a game an interesting game of Hammer Slammers with John Treadaway oh, okay. last year uh, which I reported on the ma in the magazine when I was running the magazine you might recall so uh, is there one thing that I'd like to do but just haven't had the time, money, right figures, rules of oh, Jesus, that's a long list Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I'd like to do but I haven't had the time, money you know, give me a number of parallel lifetimes Jay uh, that's a, that would be a long list a long list so I'd better just leave it there fair enough <laughs> fair enough well, on, right, on that note, again, Henry, thank you very much for coming on. I, I really do appreciate it, and it's it's always a pleasure to hear mm -hmm. you on other podcasts. It's even more of a pleasure to get to talk to you. I can't really say face to face, but across the across the amazing ether and across the across the great pond. And uh, again, thank you very much for coming on today. A real pleasure, Jay. It's you know it's been great fun, and I just realised this time with this software I can't actually see you. Last time I could see you yawning when you got bored. <laughs>
Oh, you. <laughs> Bored me never. <laughs> it's not boredom. It's just it's it's early here. It's very early here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> okay. Still shaving, still in your underwear, I know. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> as always, if the war gaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold, 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.